We are in the book of Mark, and I'd invite you to turn there. We're in Mark chapter 3. We started this passage last week. In fact, we're going to have a little bit of crossover into this week and from last week as we relook at a couple of these verses, but really only briefly to bring us into where we'll be today. You may, if you were here with us last week, and if you weren't, you won't remember this, uh, but we looked last week at the transition of Jesus, um, who was ministering to the crowds, and we don't know how big of a crowd that was, but a multitude, many, 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 many people. And what we saw is that there was only one Jesus, and there were many, many people. And this creates a major problem because even though Jesus is God, and even though he has power un, uh, unmeasured, Yet as human, uh, there was only one of him. What we saw is, is he leaves that crowd and he brings his disciples together. And out of that disciples, he calls and he raises up 12 specific apostles so that they would be with him and so that they would be given authority to cast out demons, to heal, and to preach in his name. Now, what we saw last week, we moved from the book of Mark to Luke, where Luke gives us a bit more information. And Luke actually tells us that from that crowd, he goes back into it. And unlike before, where there was only one Jesus to the multitude, now Jesus with his apostles and the disciples, the entire crowd, everybody who needed healing and demons cast out, uh, find that hope and healing in Christ. It's a powerful message to us as the church that we are meant together to minister and that we are called together um, to love and serve people in the name of Jesus. So again, we're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. This is where he goes up to the mountain and calls, and we're going to be looking at the disciples today. So Mark 3, 13 and on, it says, He went up on the mountain and called to him, those whom he desired, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. I have no idea how to pronounce that for real, so just pretend I do. That is the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Well, that's our passage today. And, and what we want to do and what I want to do as we would explore this a bit is see that in the disciples and specifically the calling out of the disciples to the apostles, oftentimes we refer to the 12 as the 12 disciples, but it's far more accurate to refer to the 12 as the apostles, as it tells us in our passage, Jesus calls them. There are many, many, many disciples, but there are only here 12 apostles. All the apostles are disciples, but not all the disciples are apostles. My hope as we would look at them today is see that in their ranks, there might be some such as us or room for some such as us in them. Christ calls his 
disciples. He calls his apostles. And I want we here today to hear that Christ calls us. So what we're going to do, we're going to start with a tiny bit of recap from last week. And that's going to lead us into looking at who these disciples are. What I want to remind you of, and maybe this is the first time you're hearing it, is that before any of these men were called into the role of apostles, before any of the disciples are called into their roles, men or women, they were called to first be with Jesus. And only after that, empowered to do and to work. So let me say very clearly, if you want to be used by God, stop doing Stop being and first take the time that you need to be with Jesus. We spent at least 10 minutes talking about this last week. I don't want to belabor this, but this is so important before we even look at who these apostles were. That we know that the first thing, the thing they were called to was to be with Jesus. Jesus. I made mention last week of a young man who wanted a church plant. And after years of frustration and trying to train him to church plant, what we discovered is that he never spent any time with Jesus. If you want to be used by God, then you need to spend time with Jesus. What we see here is he calls them He names them apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Now, the word apostles is used in two ways in Scripture. The first is what we see here. It is used as a title, as a calling. It is is used as a descriptor for a certain group of people, starting with these 12. Added to that number later on, Matthias, who the church replaces uh, Judas with. And then later, Jesus also appoints the apostle Paul to be an apostle. (laughs) This is a, a narrow group. This is not an open group. This is a set group that Christ determines himself. That's the first way the word apostle is used. And it literally just means to be sent out. It means the sent ones. And in that vein, that leads us to the second use that we see in Scripture of the word apostle, and that is as a spiritual gifting among many spiritual gifts to be used in the pioneering ministry to unreached and unchurched peoples. Apostle Paul points that out in various places as he talks about pastors and evangelists and ministers and apostles, various places in Scripture where this comes up. And And this is important for us because what we need to know is that the world is still in desperate need of those who would be gifted with apostleship. Because the world is still desperate for Jesus. And there are places, not only in third world places and around the world, that are in desperate need and completely unchurched, completely unaware of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are neighborhoods in our own town where people have never heard the gospel. So this world is in need. Apostleship is slightly different than evangelism. Evangelism seems to be a little bit more personal as it is involved in a little bit more preaching. Uh, Those who would be apostles are called to build something new. 
They're called to go to a place to establish where there was not something new. And what we need to know, and I fundamentally believe this about all of the spiritual gifts in Scripture, is that we are, as Christians, full of the Holy Spirit, gifted in certain and specific ways. Paul makes that very clear in 1st 2nd Corinthians, a number of other places where spiritual gifting is talked about. Jesus makes reference to that, particularly when he's talking about the giving of the Spirit, who will empower his people to do the work that he did. There is not a single thing that is a spiritual gift that we are not in some way, all of us, called to exhibit. The specific gifting is given to specific people and specific measures according to the grace of God. But all of the gifts are things that Christians are called to do. Those who are gifted in them will do them far better. Here's a great example. There are some who have been given the specific gift of evangelism. I am envious of those people. I mean, they go into the community, they open their mouth, they share the gospel, people come to Jesus, praise the Lord. I have to work at it really hard, and they still don't come. Fortunately, the Lord made me a discipler more than an evangelist, and as a pastor, that is pretty fitting. But nobody can say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I won't share the gospel when the opportunity arises. Likewise, the gift of hospitality. The church, modern church, does their best to ignore this. We hate this idea. We're so private. We love our homes. We love our private spaces. But every Christian is called to hospitality to making people feel welcome, whether that's in your home, in the church, in the community, or in your life. We are all called to that. But some of us are gifted in hospitality. Some of us have this spiritual gift that comes from the Lord. And when we invite people into our space, instantly they feel welcome. Instantly they feel loved. Instantly they feel like even though they're new there, it is where they belong. Nobody can say, well, I... I'm an evangelist, so I don't have to practice hospitality when it arises. Okay, you can do this with every one of the spiritual gifts as it walks through. We are all meant in these things to exhibit them as Christians when the need arises, but some of us are really good at some of them because God gifts us with that. And that we need to be reminded of because if that's true, then that means that all of us in some ways are meant to exhibit the giftings of apostleship. All of us in some way are meant to identify those places, those people, those situations in our lives that are unchurched, that are ungospeled, that don't have Jesus and are meant to enter into them. And I know there's at least a few people in this room right now who are thinking, not me. And not because you don't want to, but because you don't think you're qualified because you don't think that you are gifted, because you don't think that God could work in some such as you. You you look at your life, and you look at the life you've lived, you look at your problems, and you look at the struggles that you have, and you think, not me. And I think that's one of the very reasons that Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, gives us these lists of who these people are, who these uh, men, in this case, who are called into discipleship and into apostleship to open the door to people like you and me to actually be part of the work of God where we live. 
Because when we know who they were, we might begin to see ourselves in these stories and in these pages and in the very calling of God. So who were they? We're going to look at four things today. Who were the disciples? First of all, what you need to know is that they were known by Jesus. They were familiar to him. We looked at this last week, right? There's this crowd of thousands and thousands. And out of that crowd of thousands come a group, a gathering of disciples, somewhere between 120 and 400 probably, disciples. And out of that 120 to 400 disciples at this point, Jesus calls 12. Because he knows them. He knows them. Now this is the theme we see throughout scripture and the need to know God, this is perhaps the most important thing about you, is whether or not you are known by God. Matthew 7, I'd invite you to turn there. Verse 21 through 23. Again, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. We find one of the more troubling passages of Jesus' teaching. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is speaking about people who know him. <laughs> He's speaking about people who not only know him, but actually are capable of casting out demons and preaching and prophesying in his name, doing mighty works in his name. And they say, well, Lord, I did all these things for you. And he says, I don't even know you. Now, here's the startling thing. As we come back to our passage in Mark, clearly one of those whom he is speaking about is listed among the 12. His name is Judas. Last week we are told Jesus called the apostles, all 12 of them, not excluding the one who messed it up in the end, to know him, be with him, and to be able to cast out demons and to preach in his name. What that means is that it means Judas was traveling around the countryside preaching in Jesus' name and casting out demons, and yet he was still one who betrayed Jesus. And friends, what you need to know is that Jesus knew all of that when he called Judas. He knew who he was. He knew what he would do. And it was within his sovereign plan. Some of us, we spend a lot of time wondering whether or not those we love know Jesus when what we really should be wondering and asking people is whether or not Jesus knows them. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Not just know about him, not just know that he was this man God who lived 2,000-ish years ago who did some amazing things and died on a cross. Knowledge doesn't save, relationship does. We worry about that with others, but some of us might need to worry about it for ourselves. It is not enough to serve him. We must be known by him. We must be in friendship with him. 
And we can picture this. Jesus pulls the disciples out of the crowd. And he pulls the 12 apostles out of the disciples. Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Wish it did, but it doesn't. It tells us why they're called, what they're called to, but not why he pulled them out. They're called to know him and to be with him. And they are called to serve and minister, to preach. But we know in this passage, we know in every other passage that talks about these 12, that they were not the smartest in the room. They were not the most faithful. They were probably not the prettiest or the best well-kept. And so the question that we need to ask is, what puts them on Jesus' radar? Why out of the multitude? Why out of the disciples? Why does he choose these 12? text doesn't tell us. My guess, though, after 25 years in ministry, is that these 12 were the ones that stuck around a few extra minutes when the teaching was done. These were the ones who asked questions when they didn't quite get it. They were the ones who were left speechless, sitting in their seats, wondering what it is that Jesus just said while everybody else was getting snacks. See, my guess, and this is the best guess, is that what he saw in them was a desire, and he saw in them what they would become if they would know him, if they would sit with him and be with him. And that causes me to wonder not only about myself, and maybe it should cause you to wonder about yourself, is whether or not the life you are living and the faith that you have would put Jesus, would put you on Jesus' radar. As he looks at the multitude and as he looks at the disciples, would he call you out of them? Or would his eyes pass over you? See, the first thing we know is that they are known. They are familiar to Jesus. Here's the second. Is that as he knows them, he names them and he renames them. He names them and he renames them. Back in Mark, verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, right? He pulls them out of the crowd. I can picture this because I've been through enough uh, middle school picking teams for dodgeball or whatever else, right? Jesus has all the disciples in front of him, and he starts pulling a few names out. And if you were not very athletic when you were a kid, this was a horrifying time because you knew your name was never going to get called. But just imagine that you're in this crowd. Jesus has said a few names. You know some of them. You don't know a few of them. And suddenly your name comes up. Whew. Not only does he call them out, choosing them out, but what he does is he does so is he names them together. He says, you are now apostles. And in doing so, he gives them a purpose. He gives them a new identity. He is calling them, and we need to know, he is calling them to something none of them have ever dreamed about being. I mean, there isn't one among this crowd that if you would ask them five years earlier, hey, what are you going to be doing? What's your 10-year plan? They would have said, oh, I'm going to be a disciple of the Messiah walking around and learning from him so that I can go out and preach and plant churches and share the gospel with the world. But this is what God does. David, 
David is called to be king as a boy in the sheep fields. The only skills he had at that time was throwing rocks at bears and lions. That served him pretty well, didn't it? Moses is called to be the deliverer of God's people. Out of the wilderness he's hiding in, God says, hey, go back to the place you ran from, and I will use you there. Abraham, called to be the father of God's people, out of obscurity as an alien in a foreign land. From a man of nothing to a man of everything. And when his wife finds out, she laughs. Because it's ridiculous to think that a couple like them could have a kid at so late in age, and that that kid would lead to the blessing of the nations in the world. This is God's habit. He takes people who are not ready, who have no interest, no ability, no willingness towards it, and he puts something new in them, he speaks something new into them, and they become something new. Specifically, Simon Peter, verse 16. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Most of us, if you're familiar with this, believe his name means the rock. You would be sort of correct if you believe that, but really his name means little stone. We believe that because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells Peter, the stone, (laughs) that on this rock, I will build my house. The trouble is, is Jesus isn't talking about Peter as the rock in this moment. He's talking about the thing Peter just said. What did Peter just say? He says this, Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The rock is this truth that Peter has that he shouldn't have except that the Holy Spirit has worked in him because the Father sent the Holy Spirit to Peter to know the answer that we all need to know, that Jesus is the rock. And he says, as I tell you that you are Peter, and the word is Petrus, little rock, and on this Petra, rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail it. Jesus gives Peter a name. And I have to wonder if at the very beginning of all this, it sort of seems like a joke. I mean, to be called little stone, right? What do you do with little stones? Kids kick little stones down the road. You look at Peter and you think about who he was at the beginning of all of this, right? Really excitable, jumping from one place to another. Finally, he has the chance to stand up for Jesus. What do you do? He denies him three times and runs away from a little servant girl. Perhaps, though, maybe the reason that Jesus called Peter Little Rock is so that we might remember that every single one of us is a little rock meant to point the way to the big rock that our feet can stand on. See, it's not about Peter and his authority or his leadership. It's about Jesus. 
Verse 17, Jesus isn't done naming. <laughs> James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, through whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now, I've spent a lot of time with guys. Spent a lot of time wandering around the wilderness with guys. Spent a lot of time exploring and building close relationships. And I got to tell you, the kind of names that come out when a bunch of men are spending a bunch of time together are usually pretty fun. Jesus calls them sons of thunder. And you have to wonder how boisterous and loud and unpredictable and explosive they were. That Jesus would look at them, knowing them, and say, this is who they are. At the end of our list here in verse 18, Mark gives us the detail. Now, this isn't a renaming of him. But verse 18, we read about Simon the Zealot. What that tells us is that in this group of 12, he was known to be Simon the Zealot. Now, what does that mean? That literally means Simon the Terrorist. See, the Zealots were, were a political party. They were a group that hated Rome. And they would do anything to get Rome out of power and, and to get the Jewish reign back into place. And he is known, lovingly perhaps, as Simon the Zealot. Again, last week we, we spoke about how God uses our histories, our pasts, our problems the stuff we hate about our old lives, he so often uses that for his glory moving forward. Who had he become in the meantime? How zealous was he for the people of God, for the word of God? We don't know. We don't know why exactly he's named this, but notice this. This is his name amongst the 12. Because Mark wasn't one of the 12, but he learned from one of the 12, most likely Peter. And so Mark carries this name. He gets the name from Peter, who's, who's still years and years, decades and decades later, talking about Simon the Zealot. They are known by Jesus. They are named by Jesus. They're given this purpose. They're, they're told who they are. And each one, number three, each one is unique. Each one of these apostles is unique. Yes, there's similarities across them, right? Four of them at least were fishermen. Two of them from a rich fishing family, probably two of them from a less rich fishing family, right? You've got Matthew, the tax collector, who was in, you know, in bed with the Roman soldiers and with the Roman government. And then you've got, of course, Simon the Zealot, who would have hated Levi Matthew because of his friendship with Rome. You've got all these different men from different places, their personalities, their lives, each one of them different. And not a one of them, hear this, is erased as Jesus calls them. There was no cookie cutter that they were cut from. There was no mold that they had to fit into. There was no dress code. There was no recommended haircut. Chances are they spoke different dialects with different accents and different vocabulary across different parts of Israel that they came from. Shouldn't be surprising if we were to discover that, that the Jewish, more Jewish and more rural men had long hair with rough beards, that those who came from, from the cities might have had short hair and well-kept beards. 
right? It shouldn't surprise us as we think about them that they looked different from one another and they acted different from one another. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I once had a conversation with a woman in our church. She was really concerned about a young man. She came to me and she said, when is he ever going to give his life to Jesus? This young man had colored hair, pretty excitable, kind of artist type. What I had to inform her of is that the week before, he not only had already well in the past declared his love for Jesus, but that week before, he had felt called into full-time permanent ministry and was rebuilding his life in that direction. Because there is no cookie-cutter image of what it means and looks like to be a Christian. There's no dress code. There's no hair. There's no even set way of acting, though there is a common morality and righteousness that we should be striving for together. And some of those people that show up at your door, they are cut from the same cloth. But in the Christian faith, God takes some such as us from different backgrounds and different places, different languages, different tribes, different tongues, different nations. He takes some such as us, and he brings us together, and he says, hey, here's my church. I've been in groups where where, where creativity was squashed for the sake of uniformity. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus takes these guys, and he raises them up, and he honors who they were, and he forms and transforms it into who he's making them to be. What I want you to know, church, is that not only do you matter to God, but who you are matters to God. He knit you together in your mother's womb. We've talked about that a couple weeks ago. He formed you. He, He has made you who you are. When I was in seminary, one of the things that I learned, and I'm so thankful for this, is that we Christians should spend far more time in the areas of strength than fighting against to get better at the areas where we are weak. Now, here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean by that sin in our life. <laughs> right? If you are weak in an area of sin in your life, you are meant to put that to death. And you should spend every bit of energy, every bit of your life putting it to death until it is. One of the things I learned in seminary is that we are all gifted in certain and specific ways. And the best way to serve the Lord is to get better at the things we're good at and stop trying to fit our lives into the mold of the things that we're not good at. You're good at something because God has called you to. Maybe he's even spiritually gifted it by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Guess what? Embrace that thing and do it. And put everything else behind. Because who you are matters to God. He has made you. When I was in undergrad, I took a spiritual gifts test. Anybody remember those? I think they still exist, but I think there's a lot less emphasis on them now. And I remember I took this spiritual gifts test, and it came back, and man, I was gifted in every single spiritual gift. Praise the Lord. No, I wasn't. I was a PK who grew up in the church. 
And I knew what the image was of the perfect Christian, and I modeled my life after that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and that was really good at taking tests. Yeah, sure, there was a few things in there that I know that I was gifted in at the time and that I still know that the Lord has gifted me for. But church, there is no cookie cutter. You don't have to be good at everything. Because the Lord made you who you are for the purposes he made you. And that's what we see in the apostles. Man, they're, they're really bad at some things, but they're really good at some things. Why? Because God has a work in their life and he's called them. They are unique and so are you. Number four, what do we see about them? What do we know about the disciples? Is that some of them made a really clear and public mark on the world and others of them completely seem to have faded into the background? I love this about the apostles. Now, church history will tell us, if you read church history, you study that, and some of it is a combination of history and legend, that all 11 of the apostles, excepting Judas, who betrayed Jesus, would immediately and over time go into the world and preach the gospel in what is now modern-day India, Iraq, Iran, Africa, Europe, and China. These... 11 men from an area not much larger than the valley here. 10 of them, history will tell us, died as martyrs. John, in the Bible, would minister and write and eventually be exiled to the island of Patmos where he was assumed, where we assume that he died. James' death is recorded in Acts 12. Peter gets a bunch of story, and John gets a bunch of story in Acts, and then really never mentioned after about halfway through. Most of the apostles we read about, their names here, we have no biblical idea what they did. And I love this. I love this, because Christ called all of them to serve, to minister, to do his work. And some of them, yeah, they got well-known. Peter, real well-known. But Thaddeus... Bartholomew, Alpheus, right? I got no idea. No idea where they are, what they did, whatever else. And that's a gift to us as a church because as God calls us, some of us are going to be up front, some of us are never going to be known. Praise the Lord for both of that. Most of us, most of us know the name Billy Graham. If you don't know the name Billy Graham, you should look it up, Google it. You'll be blessed, probably. But I'm guessing very few of us, if any of us in this room, maybe only one other person in the room knows who Edward Kimball was. In the year 1858, there was a young Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. He had a heart for the children in his class. He would personally visit the children and seek to win them to Christ. One of his students was a man, young man named D.L. Moody. Now, that's a name we might start recognizing. One day, Kimball decided to visit D.L. Moody at the shoe store where he worked. He found Moody in the back stocking shelves. He shared the gospel with Moody, and there in the back of the shoe store, Moody accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Moody grew up and became an evangelist. He preached the gospel to millions of people. One of the meetings was in a little chapel, 
The pastor was named Frederick Meyer. Moody inspired Meyer to become an evangelist as well. In one of Meyer's services, a young man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman responded to God's call on his life. Chapman also went on to become an evangelist. He invited a man named Billy Sunday to help him set up his evangelism crusades. Billy Sunday learned how to preach by watching Chapman preach. Billy Sunday's preaching brought thousands of people to Christ. Inspired by a Billy Sunday crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, a group of men dedicated themselves to reaching their city for Christ. They invited an evangelist named Mordecai Ham to come and hold a series of evangelistic meetings. One person who attended Ham's services was a 16-year-old Billy, Billy Graham. On the last night of the revival, Billy went forward and gave his life to Christ. Billy Graham has communicated the gospel to more people than any other person in human history. And it all started with a Sunday school teacher whose name you don't remember anymore. Even though I said it just a couple minutes ago. Now, I, don't know, I didn't write all of that. I found that story. I've known about it for a while. But, but here's the reality. God is the one who wrote that story. And he wrote it before time. This is what happens when God's people are willing to be simply obedient where they live and, and where they love, where they serve and where they work. It is amazing to think about what can happen in the faithfulness of God's people as he works through them. Church, you don't know what God's going to do with that one conversation you have this week with someone. And in 150 years, somebody's going to be preaching. They're going to say somebody's name that everybody knows, and then they're going to reference Jeff, who taught Sunday school here today. It's some random thing that he said. Somebody came to Jesus. Okay, And even as we mention this, and we bring this in, right? There's only one name in this, in this whole list that you don't want to be known like. I would rather die in utter obscurity than verse 19 and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. I would much rather die nobody ever knowing the name Matt Witt than to be immortalized in the pages of Scripture with the one thing that I wouldn't want and that nobody would want to be remembered for. Church, we are called by God to be his. We're known. We are loved, right? We're named. We're sent. We are unique. All these things. Don't be a Judas. Don't be a Judas. Don't be known for that one thing in your life that you would be horrified if even a single other person knew about it. Don't be a Judas. Judas was a betrayer. And that's who Mark says he is, right, in our pages of Scripture. In Acts, Ananias and Sapphira are known only for lying to the Holy Spirit. You read through the books, pages of the New Testament, you read through the pages of the Old Testament, what we see is that there are those whose names are only known in infamy. They are only known because of what they did that they would love for nobody to know. And here's what I know. There's something in some of our lives in this room right now that if it became known, 
we would feel like Judas on these pages. But God's calling you. If you're here today, I believe it's because God is calling you. He's calling you either to himself for salvation, or if you're a Christian, he has called you already into salvation and is calling to send you into the world and be his people. And let me just tell you, if there is something in your life right now that if it came to light would destroy all of that, today's the day to follow the Holy Spirit straight to the foot of the cross. Maybe it's something in your relationship or your marriage. Maybe it's something in your parenting. Maybe it's something in your business. Maybe it's something that you would place your hope in. Maybe it's something in how you cope with the struggles and the problems of this world. Maybe it's the ways that you run from God. Hear the Holy Spirit leading you straight to the foot of the cross. Every one of these Names that we read about in our passage today had those things in their life. And as best we can tell, one of them let it destroy their life. And the other 11 let God change their life and change the world. This is the gospel. That Jesus Christ can come into anything in our lives, any situation in our lives. He can remove any sin, any problem, any pain, and he can bring us healing, and he can bring us hope, and he doesn't leave us there. He sends us. And so maybe you're sitting here today, and you're sitting in that spot, and you know there's that thing in your life. In just a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and maybe you're going to come forward for the Lord's Supper, or maybe you're going to sit right in your seat. Tell you, if you've got that sin sitting right there in your life and you know it and the Holy Spirit's poking you, then today might be a good day to skip the Lord's Supper. We're told in the Corinthians that we are to approach the table properly. And we need a whole sermon on what that means. One of the ways, the things that it surely means is that we would come, and if there's sin in our life, we would bring it to Jesus. And if we are unwilling to walk away from that sin, that we would not come. Maybe some of you today need to give your life to Jesus for the first time, or maybe for the tenth time, because it just has never really set in. And I want to encourage you, come to the cross. If you can do that on your own in prayer and in that moment as you prepare yourself, then praise the Lord. If you need to come talk to me, whether that's during the Lord's Supper now or maybe that's sometime this week because you just can't even bring yourself to say it out loud right now. Or maybe it's some of the person that you love and that you know, that you trust, that you can go to. Open up. Share that. Tell somebody. And find help and healing to move forward to the cross. Jesus wants to heal you. He loves you. He knows you. He's called you. So come. Let us pray. God, we thank you and we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. We thank you for your word, for the example of these 11 and really the example of all 12, Lord, because we don't want to be like Judas. And God, we pray that you would make us like the others. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that you would call some such as us from our situations and our lives, Lord, and that you would lead us into what's next. God, we thank you and we praise you. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.